The scripture for today's survey comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be here with you. Let's pray and ask God to meet us and speak to us and make us alive um, as we hear his word together. Father, that is my prayer. That by your spirit right now, you would wake us up with your promise. You would make us alive with your promise. You would convict us with your promise. You would motivate us with your promise. You would heal us with your promise. You would fix our hopes on your promise. And and Spirit of the living God, only you can do that. So I ask that you would do miracles among us this morning. In, in, In my heart as well. So come and make our hearts hospitable to your word, receptive to your word, and give us faith and courage to respond to it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've already named multiple times, it is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And what that means is we're standing on the threshold of Christmas. Anybody excited for that? Yeah, woo! <laughs> At least one of you is excited for that. Let me ask another question that maybe we'll get a more um, robust amen. Anybody ready for a break? Yeah. Hey, see, it, it blows my mind. I have not talked with anybody in the last few weeks that isn't utterly exhausted, running on fumes, totally gassed staring at Christmas, and for whatever reason it seems to happen, sickness filling your house. Anybody else like that? So we're sick, we're tired, we're under-resourced, we're over-scheduled, and now we're standing on the threshold of Christmas, needing a break. And I realized something fresh this week that was really encouraging to me, convicting to me. It, it, It captivated my imagination, my energy, everything, honestly. And it was realizing, realizing 
that the exhaustion that we feel in the season of Advent is God's gift to us. Let me explain to you what I mean. I have, for as long as I can remember, probably as long as I've been an adult at least, um, I have come into Advent with this high ideal and this rigorous plan that I want to walk through the four weeks leading up to Christmas with a heart of worship and a heart of like engaging God in prayer, anticipating the coming of Jesus, celebrating Christmas for what Christmas should be celebrated for. I have this plan by which I want to confront consumerism. And I don't mean consumerism out there. I mean consumerism in here. I want to confront the consumerism. I want to rail against the frenzy of Christmas. And I thought yesterday, honestly, I was like, I don't know if I can remember a year where that plan hasn't left me at the end of the holiday season frustrated, feeling guilty, and feeling like I failed my plan. And I had this plan. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I want to I focus on Advent as a worshiper of Jesus. And I never have the energy to actually enact the plans I set forth for myself. And as I looked again this week, realizing like, man, here's another Advent season come and gone, and I haven't even done what I set out to do prayers and devotions in my own time with the Lord, devotions with my family, liturgy in our household, I'm a failure. That's because I'm tired. And in that, in that moment of despair, the Spirit of God just spoke to me, hey, that exhaustion, that despair, all of that you feel is the way you engage the coming of the Son of Man. Like that exhaustion that you feel, that sickness and tiredness that you're battling right now, if your house is anything like mine, is God's loving providence for you and for me to receive what he intends us to receive in the coming of Jesus. Because what we long for really in the depth of our bones is we long for God to make things new. And, and, and I don't mean new like a new shirt is new. I, I don't mean new like a Christmas present is new. Because think about how long something that's new in that sense stays new. Seconds. There will be presents unwrapped in our living rooms, right? In just a few short days that there have been so much longing, so much obsession, so much anticipation built up for in the hearts of our kids. Not our hearts, of course. Like the presents will be unwrapped and before the wrapping is discarded, the gifts will feel old. And that is God's gift to us. Because what we long for is something new, but not new in terms of its sense of time. We long for something new in the sense of the quality of newness. 
We long for qualitative freshness that cannot be taken away from us. And the God of the universe declares to us in this moment, in this season, in his word, Revelation 21, 5, behold, says the most high God, I am making all things new. New, new, and not the kind of new that gets old, the kind of new that is from eternity past and will be for eternity future, new, qualitatively new. Listen to how Tim Keller puts this. Underneath the diets, underneath the need for vacations in new places or new clothes and new things that make you feel kind of good when you're with new things, but they all fade, there is within us this need for eternity. We all need eternity. We need this newness God is talking about. We want it more than anything else. Did you know that about yourself this morning? Did you know that what you long for, the, the newness that you long for, and the refreshment that you're yearning for in this season of exhaustion cannot be found in this place and time. But God promises that to us in himself forever. And, and that's what we celebrate that Jesus came and brought to us. Jesus came into our world, God with us, so that human beings can experience what we were created to experience, nearness with God, the presence of God, the love of God, not just for a fleeting moment, but forever. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is God's promise to establish a new heaven and a new earth, not new like the shoes you will unpack on next Sunday will be, but new that is qualitatively new forever. So what I want us to do is I want us to walk backwards, kind of, through this passage in 2 Peter, and I want us to see three movements in this text. First, I want us to note the glory of the promise. And I want us to unpack this. This is God's promise for a new heavens and a new earth. So I want us to talk firstly about the glory of the promise. Secondly, I want to talk about two ways that we overlook the promise. And then finally, I want to talk and exhort us about how we live according to the promise. So the glory of the promise, two ways we overlook the promise, and how we live according to the promise. So look with me at verse 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. If you close your Bibles, take a second to open it back up. If you need it on your phone, open it there. Um, it might be on the screen behind you. If you need a Bible and don't have one, we've got one at least on the side of this room for you, either side that you can grab and take with you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says this, Speaking to people, by the way, that are struggling. They're struggling under um, separation, isolation, persecution. And we see earlier in this chapter that they have people scoffing and mocking the teaching of God, trying to lead them astray. And he says to them this, and by God's grace, he says it to us this morning. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, here's the thing. 
if we're expected to wait according to the promise, surely God has spoken to us about his promise. You can't be expected to wait according to a promise that you don't know the details of, but God in his mercy, in his word, has outlined elaborate, glorious details to us about the promise that we're awaiting. So I just want to name and walk through them, a few of them with you. And in order to do that, I want us to look at the last book of the Bible. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Scroll on your phones, however you get there. Look over your friend's shoulder. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I want to read verses 1 to 4 of Revelation 21 and verses 1 to 5 of Revelation chapter 22. I wish we had more time. This is John speaking about what God has revealed to him, he tells us in the first chapters through signs. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. By the way, the sea in the ancient world was the center of wickedness and out of controlness and chaos. You didn't vacation at the sea. You asked God to calm it. And he says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there was no sea. It doesn't mean there was no water. There's no evil there. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Skip over to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And Peter says, according to this promise, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. We're enduring frustration and failure and betrayal and addiction and sin and conflict and sickness and death. But according to this promise, we are waiting. Now, if you look at chapter 21 of Revelation, John tells us who and what will be absent in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we're called and instructed by God to wait according to the promise. I want to put the promise in front of our eyes and in our hearts to the best we can. Look at verse 4 of chapter 21. 
There will be no tears in the new heavens and the new earth, no grief, no death, no sadness, no pain. And I realize we didn't read it just a moment ago, but look down to verse 8 of Revelation 21 and see that there's no one who's cowardly, no one who's unbelieving, no lying will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. There's nothing that is detestable, abhorrent, immoral, or abominable that will be there. There's nothing that's sexually immoral that will be in the new heavens and the new earth, nor the guilt and the shame that comes with sexual behavior that takes place out of the context it was designed for. None of that will be there. There will be nothing idolatrous in the new heavens and the new earth, which is to say God will rightly be in his place in the affections of every redeemed human being there. No one will be fighting for God's glory, despising God's glory, contesting God's glory. It will be the day of the Lord forever. Think about how we talk about the image of it being your day. On your wedding day or on your birthday, we say things to you like, hey, this is your day. This is your day. And what we mean is we're redefining everything about the way we relate to you because this is your day. And for eternity, the promise of God is it will be his day. And no one will be competing with that. No one will be bitter about that. No one will be disappointed about that. It will be God's day forever. No chronic pain. No lust, no fatigue, no addiction, no shame. Forever. Not just for a long time, not just till the next season comes, but we're talking about hundreds of billions of years forever. No misdeeds of any kind. Peter tells us in verse 13 of chapter 3, that no unrighteousness will be there of any kind. It is the city in which righteousness dwells. And if there are any doubts in your mind of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, look at verse 27 of Revelation chapter 21. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, this city will be characterized by glorious, infinite love and righteousness forever, forever. Now, I have no idea what we're going to see with our eyes when we're there. But I can think about the most beautiful things I've ever seen here and I can heed the words of the promises of God that the most glorious things I've seen on this earth will not compare with that which is to come. There's a famous martyr in the history of the church that describing the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the created order, he said, if God gives this to his friends, to his enemies, imagine what he gives to his friends. Like, this is what we will see forever. I have, for as long as I've had a family, really, taken my family to Colorado in the summer. 
I, I, I got to see something besides the flatness that surrounds us. And my soul, in order to be sane, needs something below 300 degrees for just a minute. <laughs> just a minute. I'll endure, I'll endure the heat and everything else for longer times. But I need just for a minute, I need, I need to go to 9,000 feet. And my guess is none of you have ever looked at me and thought, Collie looks like a cyclist. But I, I love to ride bikes. Love it. Man, I, p- I pity the bike. It, better than a horse. At least it's not alive. <laughs> I, I, I go to Colorado with my family, and I ride bikes as much as I can for as long as I can until I have to come back. And it's actually always a struggle for me being there and wanting to take everything in and hold it, and it never stops. I was with a friend a couple of summers ago. He came to visit us, and he went on a bike ride with me. And in one of the glorious mountain passes in Summit County, we stopped at the top of the pass. It, to say that we wanted to look at the view, but if you've ever climbed a mountain pass on a bicycle, you stop to catch your breath and tell people you're gazing at the glory around you. <laughs> but when I finally caught my breath, I said to my friend, Hey, man, there's something about me that never wants to leave here. I just want to, like, abandon my job, abandon everything, and just be here forever. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Hey, Kevin, the glory of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth is you don't have to try to hold on to this now. God gives us this and more forever. That, that is the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. And according to this promise, Peter says, we wait. I don't know what we'll see when we're in the restored heavens and the restored earth. And if you see in the scriptures, it's not like we're going to be disembodied spirits floating up to some place. God tells us that his kingdom and his world are coming down to restore and renew and make infinitely more glorious everything material that we see now. You get to keep the mountains forever. Forever. You get to keep them. And and I don't know what we'll hear when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. But the scriptures tell me that the host and company of heaven have been singing since the foundation of the world praises to God, and we will get to participate in those heavenly choruses together with all the saints from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Check this out, in harmonies that we can't presently fathom with instruments that don't presently exist, in key signatures that we couldn't presently think about, in languages that we don't presently know about or understand. I I remember talking with a church several years ago, and this church was all surly because in their opinion, they were singing too long. God God help us as church folk because we're complaining people. It's just, welcome to Frontline, we complain. We don't have to, by God's grace, but we do. This wasn't Frontline. It was another church just like us, complaining about singing too long. Then I said to them from the pulpit, hey, if you're, if you're bitter about singing too long on Sundays, you're going to hate heaven. It's all we're going to do. <laughs> and this guy sulks up to me afterwards, and he says, are you kidding me? You mean to tell me that what we just did for 20 minutes, we're going to do forever? And I said, 
No, I'm not saying that. What we just did for 20 minutes pales in ludicrous comparison to what we'll do forever. We will sing in keys that we don't know about, with harmonies that we don't know about, with senses that I would suspect don't exist. I I don't think we're going to engage the new heavens and the new earth merely with sight, smell, hearing, touch, and taste. If we are living in redeemed and restored and glorified bodies, doesn't it stand to reason that we will engage the new creation with new senses? How small these songs will seem when we sing forever and can see color. You think synesthesia is weird? What if that's just the way we functioned in the new heavens and the new earth? This is what we get to do forever, and there will be no anxiety related to, is this ever going to end? Think about all those moments that you love, that you cherish, that you really appreciate, and you start coming to that moment in it when inevitably it dawns on you that this won't last forever, and then your enjoyment is diminished because you're realizing it will come to an end. Such will never be the case in the new heavens and the new earth. And according to this promise, says Peter to the people of God, we wait. This is what Jesus came into our world to secure. And the essence of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, we see in verse 4 of Revelation 22. I mean, circle it in your Bible. You're like, this isn't my Bible. I don't care. Circle it anyway. Look at Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face. That's what heaven will be like forever. I remember when I was a young Christian, I had a pastor that would say to me regularly, if you can think about all the glories of heaven, no tears, no sickness, no disease, no sadness, if you can think about all those things and remove God from the center of it and be happy, then you're not a Christian, you're an idolater. If you can conceive of the new heavens and the new earth and Revelation 22 verse 4 is enough for you, you're a Christian. They will see his face. And you remember when Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see dimly. Now we see through occluded, dirty lenses. But then we will see face to face. That's the promise that he's talking about. That's the promise that Jesus came to secure. And that is the promise Peter exhorts us that according to it, we wait. We wait for the day where infinite, holy, righteous love will pervade and animate and orient everything. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And your longing Your sickness, your fatigue, your frustration, your despair, if embraced by faith, 
can be the very vehicle by which you look to that day because all those things inside of us tell us that we need something new and not the kind of new that Amazon can deliver. We need something new that only God himself possesses. According to this promise, we wait. Full disclosure about me, in case you haven't figured this out. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon that's hit the clock the way it's supposed to be. I've never preached a sermon that felt like I had enough time to preach it. And this morning of every sermon I've ever preached in my life, I feel like what I've just done is wholly inadequate to even whet our thirst for what has been promised to us in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we were created for, to be a people and to have a place where God could dwell among us. And he said, I accomplished that in the first arrival of my son. It is secured and kept in heaven for you. And that day is coming when everything will be fully and finally accomplished. That is the promise according to which we wait. But Peter says, if you go back to our passage, there's a way in which we can overlook it. Did you notice that? He says, don't overlook this. Verse 8, do not overlook this one fact. And if you look back up in the previous context, he's already told us that there are other people that are overlooking this fact in verse 5. And in verse 5 and in verse 8, we see that there are two ways to overlook the promise of the coming of Jesus and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. The first way in verse 5 is a deliberate way of overlooking it. In fact, he says, these scoffers, these people that are teaching contrary to the teaching of God, they're trying to serve their own sinful desire. It's not that they believe what they see. They see what they believe, Peter says. Which, by the way, what all of us do. He says these people don't believe in the coming kingdom of God because they don't want to. It is an intellectual way of overlooking it. And hey, there's some of you in here this morning that this is your way of overlooking the promises of his coming. You have intellectual doubts about his coming. That's okay. I echo what my brother Dylan said. I pray that you feel welcome here. And not just welcome in some kind of token way, but like, man, these people are actually hospitable to me. These people remember what it was like not to believe. These people are patient with me, loving with me, and these people are utterly compelled by the promise of his coming. If that's you, take a Bible from us and read verses 3 to 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3 later this afternoon. Because what Peter is saying is, you should at least be consistent. Here's the summary of his logic. Either God created the universe or he did not. If he created the universe, then he has the right to evaluate it according to whatever measure he desires, and he has the power to redeem and restore it. If he did not create the universe, then nothing has any meaning, and there is no right and wrong, and you are no one to judge anyone. 
That's the logic. And that's a way of overlooking the promises of the kingdom of God. It's like we overlook the instruction that was given to us that we don't want to do. We have a fridge in our garage that's filled with soda. Full secret if you come to the Collie House. It's filled with soda. Is that healthy? Heavens no. But I wanted something fun in my life where people that came to our house go, hey, can I, can I go out to that fridge and get a soda? And I want you to feel comfortable enough in my house. You don't even ask. You just go out there. But Collie children do not have permission to just freely visit that fridge. <laughs> now, occasionally they are told, go to the fridge, get a soda. I've never once seen my children forget that instruction. I've never seen them later and be like, hey, did you get a Coke? Oh, I forgot. But I've seen them forget, clean your room, pick up that towel, take out the trash, put your dish away. Why do we forget those things, but we never forget the stuff we want to do? The answer from God's word and your own experience is you forgot it because you didn't want it. That's a way of overlooking the promises of God. Man, if that's you, I pray that today the Spirit of God opens your eyes, not to abandon your intellect. You need your intellect to follow Jesus. But I pray the Spirit of God opens your eyes and you say, oh, oh, oh. The kingdom of his righteousness says things to me about my own wickedness. The, the coming judgment of the Most High God says things to me about my need for a sacrifice. And Jesus is that for you. Don't overlook his kingdom. Don't overlook the promise of his coming. That's, that's the first way you overlook it deliberately and intellectually. But when Peter comes to verse 8 of chapter 3, and he's speaking to the saints now, and he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He's talking to those of you in the room that follow Jesus. You, you haven't overlooked the promises of God because you've rejected them. But how do you overlook the promises of God as a Christian? What's the way you struggle in the day in and day out life of faith under addiction and betrayal and conflict with parents and conflict with friends and falling out with long-time relationships and crisis with children and um, undiagnosed medical problems that will not go away, with depression that does not seem to lift, with the kind of agony inside your body that makes you want to cry out, how long, O oh Lord? And Peter says, do not let that cause you to overlook his promises. There's a means by which, friends, we just forget the promises of God, because laboring by faith to walk in them is long and hard. Long and hard. And to that heart, Peter says, don't, don't forget. Don't forget. Don't let, don't let cancer, don't let disappointment, don't let unemployment, don't let underemployment, don't let spiritual opposition and spiritual warfare cause you to overlook this one thing. There is a day coming, says the Most High God, and it is a very real day. In fact, it will be the most real day we have ever experienced in our lives. There is a day coming in which the Most High God will make all things new. 
That's the admonition from God to us this morning, that according to that, we would live and wait. So let's close our time and close our passage. Look at verse 11 of 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, by the way, he's not talking about like the skies literally catching fire. Any place in the Bible where we see what one scholar has called cosmic conflagration language, anytime we see the skies on fire, God's trying to talk to us about consummate world realizing and defining judgment and recreation. So he's not saying like, hey, wait for the sky to melt. It'd be a bad day. We're actually looking for a great day, a glorious day. Since all these things are about to happen, what sort of people ought you to be? What a great, loving, tender, fatherly, pastoral question for Peter to phrase to you. Hey, if, if there is a day coming that will be an infinite day of glory in which holy, eternal love triumphs forever, if that day is coming, how should you live now? How should you live in light of that day? And Peter says, we should live lives of holiness and godliness because the scriptures make clear that our enjoyment in eternity is shaped by how we live now. There is a sense in which our capacity for eternal enjoyment is structured and stretched now. And Peter says, you should, you should be people who are orienting your lives for that eternal day. I, I, I thoroughly reject the adage that we've lived by. It's like that person's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Whoever made that you, you know, like aphorism up is a liar. In fact, the scriptures bear witness that the only way we're of use, usefulness here is to be obsessed with heaven to be obsessed with it. And Peter says, the way you live now, check out these two words. I want us to close here. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. No, waiting for, we talk about all the time here at Frontline. It's an active posture. It's a leaned-in posture. It's a grace-empowered, spirit-empowered activity. Waiting is not passive. Waiting requires fighting sin, pushing back darkness, preaching the truth to ourselves and others. That's how you live in light of his promise. You orient everything in your life toward it, and you orient your money and your schedule and the way you deal with injustice, both that which is propagated towards others and that which you experience yourselves. You orient that to an eternal future that's driven by love. How do you deal with injustice personally now if you're waiting for the kingdom of God? You acknowledge that I can forgive as I've been forgiven. I can show love where I've experienced lovelessness and I can entrust myself to one who will judge justly. I don't have to take vengeance now. That's how I wait for. And then he says to hasten it, to speed it up. My wife and I talked this week and she's like, Kev, I don't even know what that word means. And I was like, candidly, I don't know if I do either. But I wonder if God's saying to us that he has decreed that the longing of his people be one of the means by which his eternal kingdom is ushered in. 
And even if I don't know the answer to that question, I've decided that the way I'm going to hasten the coming of the new heavens and the new earth according to the promises of God is I'm going to focus my longing, my prayers, my desires towards begging God to have that day come. Like, is there a sense in which a loving father will at some point finally go, fine, it's okay, fine, it's time. Like, what if we committed as a church family to ask him to come back? To ask him to come back, to ask him to establish righteousness, to ask him to establish justice, to ask him to establish love. And those prayers were the means by which he hastened his kingdom. What I know is I, I can't say for sure if those prayers will hasten his kingdom. But I am relatively certain that that's the way we wait for and hasten his kingdom. Pray with me, Lord Jesus. I mean, to talk about the glories of the new heavens and the new earth for me are utterly exhilarating. <laughs> if I was told I had 11 hours to preach, I'd just ask for a bottle of water. Let's go. I, I want that, God. And I want to uh, not just be excited to talk about it. I want to be earnest to wait for it and hasten it. I want to orient a heart of forgiveness according to it, a heart of love, a heart of generosity, patience, tenderness, peace. And I want to walk with these brothers and sisters in such a way that our collective life together is beating on the gates of heaven saying, come back. Now would now be the time, would now be the time. Do that, God, according to your word, and we will wait as your people according to your promises. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.